Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The House of Many Worlds, written by Sam Merwin, Jr. The Classic of Alternate Earths Ancient, encrusted with legend, supposedly empty, the old mansion on Spindrift Key stood like a dark and lowering wraith. In this classic science fiction novel, the New York Times called A Fast-Moving Adventure Told with Engaging Humor, reporter Elspeth Mariner's nose for news leads her into a world of trouble. Make that in worlds of trouble. When she and photographer Mac Fraser, the man she loves to hate, are sent to investigate the old mansion in the Hatteras, they never dream that once inside, their lives will never be the same. For the house is a gateway to alternate earths, watched over by a mysterious group called the Workers, who guard against more advanced civilizations crossing the dimensional barriers to conquer defenseless neighbors. From the Workers, Elspeth learns that her and Mac's presence at the house is no accident. They have been personally selected by the Workers for a dangerous assignment. Their unique combination of talents and knowledge are needed to counter a threat that could plunge the entire world into war. If Elspeth accepts the assignment, she would have to cross to another world, aided only by her native ingenuity, then surmount a succession of plots and counterplots with death the price of failure. Worse, she would have to work more closely than ever with the detested Mark Fraser. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The House of Many Worlds. Chapter 1 Elspeth Mariner fingered the sticky surface of the thick tumbler on the gimpy-legged table and wondered what in hell she was doing in the dingy little restaurant. As a poetess, she reminded herself, it was her duty to have her feet in the mire as well as her head in the clouds— but this was going a little too far. Besides, the night sky outside was cloudless. Seeking to screen out Mac's insistent and unsubtle prodding of the leather-skinned native he was plying with the hot and heavy liquid molasses that passed for rum in this incredibly backward little Carolina community, she concentrated on the strip of pale amber flypaper that dangled from the ceiling which was less than six feet above her head. At regular intervals, the curved planes of its spiral surface glistened menacingly in the dim reflection of the green-shaded lamp that dangled beyond it from a dark brown cord. Less regularly, trapped insects buzzed hysterical protest at such unmannerly death as faced them. She counted the flies she could see embedded in its sticky surface. There were exactly fourteen, five more than had been present the night before. It was these five that were buzzing. The others were still. Fourteen, she thought. Fourteen, the magic number that spelled sonnet. She began mentally to frame a sonnet to fourteen wretched flies, caught in a spiral of flypaper, five alive, nine dead. 
Surely even such unpleasant creatures merited some sort of memorial to their passing. She lost the thread of her verse in the midst of a couplet, and a rhyme scheme with it. Her head was aching dully, just in back of her temples, either from lack of sleep in the course of the assignment, or from the soggy fried food, which was all this Carolina township had to offer, or from the drink and a half of blackstrap rum she had just consumed, or perhaps her headache was the result of a combination of all three. If Mac didn't get her back to New York on the morrow, she would... She glanced covertly at the photographer, who was leaning on the soiled oilcloth table cover, as if eager to absorb every illiterate word of the native's half-drunken blather. It would be pleasant, she thought, to do something that would wipe the conscientious eagerness from his too hard, too old, too young gladiator's face. According to Oren Lewis, the tough-fibered, smooth-talking managing editor of Picture Week, who had teamed them for the Hatteras Keys assignment, Mac Fraser had once been a professional prizefighter. Elspeth believed him. Mac's nose was slightly flattened across the bridge, its end a trifle off-center. His cheekbones were not quite symmetrical, as if one, the left one, had been shattered by a fist. His eyes habitually wore a sleepy look, which, she suspected, came from the thin pouches of scar tissue on their upper lids. She told herself sternly that she was being a snob, that she had no right to object to the fact that Mac had once made a living in the ring, but she could not help resenting the fact that he seemed determined to treat her as if merely because she had not had to struggle out of some similar gutter, she did not quite belong to the human race. And I'm telling you, Mac, the native said in his soft brogue as the photographer signaled the bar for a refill, that there's still some mighty odd things happening around here from time to time. He paused and the Adam's apple vibrated beneath the scaly red skin of his turkey neck. We don't make much talk of it to outsiders as a rule. He paused again to chuckle and even sounded like a turkey. Oh, matter of fact, we don't make much talk of it among ourselves. What sort of odd things? Mac asked quietly. He was leaning back in his chair now, apparently disinterested, since his fish was nibbling at the bait. Elspeth winced, thinking the pumping process painfully obvious. If she were Cory, or whatever the native's name was, but of course she wasn't. Lacking a waiter, the bartender himself, a large, lame individual with faded blue eyes and thick gray hair on the backs of his fingers, brought drinks over to the two men. Corey nodded and mumbled his thanks, and lifted his fresh glass to Elspeth, who managed what she hoped was a smile as he downed half its contents at a single gulp. She shuddered at the sight, 
feeling as though she had drunk it, but on Corey it had no visible effect. It's like this, Corey went on, planting his forearms on the table after wiping his mouth with one dirty blue sleeve. It goes back a long, long ways. Some say to the bankers and maybe even beyond. I've heard of them, said Elspeth, deciding she ought to say something in return for the courtesy of Corey's toast. They used to do things to the beacon lights, to force ships ashore on the Hatteras shoals, and then loot them. Nice people. That they weren't, said Corey, apparently taking her last two words literally. And they did worse than loot. Some say they slew ten thousand men, aye, and women, and little children. They could not afford to let any of them live. But what's this funny stuff, these odd things you were starting to tell us about? said Mac. His voice, Elspeth decided, was not actually bad. But it was rough around the edges, unfiled for subtlety or fine shades of meaning. On the whole, it went well with its owner. Some nights, the lights still shine, said Corey, placing his gnarled and brine-cracked lobster-pot hands flat on the oilcloth tabletop. His voice dropped a full half-octave. And when the lights are seen, things happen. Other times there's darkness, darkness not even the stars can shine through when there's not a cloud in the sky, and that's worse. Not so fast, Corey, said Mac, his low forehead furrowed. You say things happen when these lights are seen? What sort of things? Big things. Bad things. The native said slowly, painfully seeking his words. Things like wars and earthquakes and troubles to match. Times we don't get to hear of them until a long while after. But we know when they happen. And Corey, why is this darkness you talk about worse? Mac inquired, again leaning forward. Corey hesitated and scratched his unkempt, coarse black hair. He looked around the restaurant a trifle furtively and then leaned toward both of them, his voice low and hoarse as he said, It's difficult to explain, but it is. You've got to see it when it happens to understand what I mean. You mean the whole locality? The entire area here just blacks out? Elsbeth asked incredulously. Although their assignment to come up with a romantic picture story about the Hatteras Keys and their inhabitants had been a notable fizzle to date, she was in no mood for haunts. Not so you'd notice, miss, said Corey regarding her as if she were a toddler who had failed to pass a first-grade test. 
What I've been telling you is that Spindrift Key is the place. He paused and Mac cut in with, I think I know. Let's see. That would be the island just beyond the mouth of the inlet. He looked thoughtful, added, I'm afraid it's too well-groomed, too clipped-looking for this story we've been sent out on. Do you mean to tell me that what I mean to say is that that's where these things happen I've been trying to tell you about, the native said, drawing himself up with a trace of dignified affront. Then, glancing down at his glass, which was again empty, he dropped his dignity and added earnestly, Listen, you people may be outsiders, but you've been mighty decent to me. Mighty decent. I wouldn't tell you no lies, not so as you'd notice it. I know what I know, Mac. But the place can't be haunted. Mac protested solemnly. Hell, I cruised all around it yesterday with Elsbeth here on her way to the Outer Shoals. It looks like a Southdown manor compared to the rest of these desolate places. And that big white house on it is well kept up. The lawns are clipped and the shrubbery. Didn't say it was haunted, stated Corey, looking hopefully at his glass. All I told you was that Spindrift Key is where things happened. It's where they've always happened. But somebody must live there, Mac said steadfastly. The place is too well kept up. Didn't say nobody lived there neither, Corey told them. The Frenchman lives there, him and his people. Always have lived there as far as we know around here. Frenchman, inquired Elspeth more to keep from falling asleep than to contribute to the conversation. She was totally and desperately tired. Three days of traipsing to and around this rough-hewn, primitive Carolina country with Mac were enough, she thought, to put any girl on the ropes. He's a foreigner anyway. And he's got a French sort of name. Horrell, said Corey. Mac flashed Elspeth a quick, speculative look. Then, turning back to the native, he said, Sounds like it might be worth a visit. Do you think this Horrell might be in tomorrow? I can't tell you about that, said Corey with a massive shrug. Sometimes he's there. Sometimes he ain't. But Mac, said Elspeth in horror, tomorrow we've got to get back to New... But someone's got to be there, said Mac as if she hadn't spoken at all. A big place like that. I can't very well tell you about that either, drawled the native. Around here we leave the spindrift key folk pretty much to themselves. Always have. It suits them fine and suits us likewise. But there's times when the key is just empty ground. Max straightened in his chair and looked briefly at the watch on his wrist. 
It's only a little after nine, he told them. Could you get us out there tonight, Corey? Maybe I could, said Corey in a tone of deep reluctance. It's a fact Aurel don't like visitors dropping in unexpected like. I hear tell he's downright discouraging. Mac, Elspeth said sharply, I'm beat. They had risen at a quarter of five that morning so Mac could get shots of the sunrise over the keys. It's a story, maybe, and we're in no spot to pass one up, Mac told her firmly. The photographer was not to be denied. To her considerable surprise and even greater disgruntlement, Elsbeth found herself, nine minutes and a final drink later, standing with Mac outside the dingy little restaurant in the virtually unpaved main street of the little Carolina coastal town. Despite the fact that it was still early in the evening, it appeared that most of the denizens had already gone to bed. No wonder they seem to have so many children, she murmured half to herself. They have nothing else to do nights. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The House of Many Worlds. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.